This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, so good to have you with us today. We started this series, My Hot Mess, a few weeks ago, and it's been so good that I thought it would be helpful today as we continue in it to really just kind of go back and review some of the basic concepts that we've went over. In the first week, we ended the message by me having you basically repeat over and over and over again what would be a mantra that we're going to talk about through the entire series. It's this. Now, and when we did that, it wasn't cultish as much as it was a confession, okay? Because there's things that we need to occasionally just confess and get right. It was this, that I know a hot mess when I see one because I am one. And a lot of the times we, we don't realize that we're actually a hot mess. What, what a hot mess is, is a hot mess is basically functional on the, on the outside, looks good from a distance, but behind the scenes, there's a lot of mess and dysfunction. Okay, and many of us, if we're honest, you guys were yelling at each other this morning. You got in fights last night, but you showed up at church this morning with your smiles and your pretty clothes and everything looks like it's perfect, but it's not. Okay, we're hot mess. And a lot of times when we see the mess in other people, the reason we can acknowledge the mess and even know that it's there is ultimately because we've experienced it in our own lives. We know mess because we've seen mess and we've experienced mess on our own. And that's why really the second point is so important, that the mess that draws us together is the same mess that brought God near. The mess that draws us together isn't mess one of those points where we can connect with other people, where we can say, hey, you know what? I've been there. I've experienced that. I've had the same experience as this before. And so for us, like I think it's one of those things where mess is a connecting point, but not only is it a connecting point, but it draws God to us. It draws God to us And it is so important to know that mess is something that will often invite people into our lives, invite the Holy Spirit into our lives. Then the third thing is that Jesus loves this hot mess, but he loves me too much to leave me in a mess. He loves me as a hot mess. God loves me. He's not judging me. He's, he's, not, he's not pushing me away. He's not keeping me at a distance the way that we may culturally view judgment. But he definitely is going to come in and, and say, hey, I'm not going to leave you in that mess. I'm not going to leave you in that mess. And in, in a way that while God is accepting and gracious, God is also in many ways judging in the capacity where he is constantly working to provide freedom and escape for us. It's very, very important to know that God doesn't want to leave you in a mess. And I started thinking about those three realities this week, and I I just came to kind of understand that I think that that's a lot like moms, isn't it? That's a lot like the way that mothers love us 
when we're together. Look at this. I think that moms love us in our messes, in spite of our messes, and out of our messes. Have you ever noticed that about the love of a parent? That parents love us in our messes, in spite of our messes, but then they don't just leave us in our mess. They love us out of our mess. I I think that, so obviously you met my son who talked to you quite a bit just a little bit ago. And and if he's, he's only barely a month old right now. And the thing about that, I've noticed this is the third time we've done it. He's our third child. And I've noticed that when your kids are young, you talk a whole lot about their poop. All right. It's just, it's just what you do. It's weird. You wouldn't do that with anybody else. You would never go up to somebody else and say, Hey, could you pick them up and smell their butt? But we do that with infants, right? Which is odd to me a little bit, you know, just to check and see if they've made a mess. But you know, what's funny about that is that if they've made a mess, we don't go, Hey, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm throwing you away. All right, we actually, we help them get out of their mess. And then later on in the journey, don't we, as good parents, we go through the awful mess of potty training, which is no fun at all. It's actually more messy than just to continue to put them in diapers, but we hope that it's going to be helpful in the long run because we hope that there's going to come a time that I won't have to change you. And as we love and serve, moms love us in our mess. They love us in spite of our mess, and then they love us outside of our mess to help us get out of our mess, which is so much like the love of God. God loves us while we're in our mess, and then he helps us to get out of it. And so a few weeks ago, I invited you to, on social media, share your messes, pictures of your messes with the hashtag, my hot mess. And I wanted to share a few pictures of some friends of mine that did it. This is Holly right here. Holly posted this picture of her son's room. I, you can't tell really, but in the middle, is a young man. His name is Jensen. And he didn't want to go to school. And he made a mess out of his room to try to get out of going to school. She was very excited that they only have a few more weeks left. How many of y'all can identify? Well, I've, I've seen my kids make this kind of mess before. And, and then Katie, my friend, posted this as well. And, and if you look at Katie, Katie said that, that their room was clean 10 minutes before she took this picture. Have, have you ever had that happen to you where there was a clean and then all of a sudden your kids are there and there's a, because you don't have to teach kids to make a mess, do you? You know, they figure that out on their own, which really kind of brings me to my first point today, which is in your notes today, that every family is messy. Every family is messy, which really, honestly, if you're here today and you're examining and thinking about your family, this should be one of those things that in our hearts we kind of go, oh, thank God. Right? It's not just us. It's not just, we're not the only ones that deal with fill in the blank. And you're not. Whatever it is that your family struggles with, you're not the only family. But the unique thing about mess in the context of family is that every family tends to have their own brand of messy. All right? Some things that you do that you pass down from generation to generation that just don't make any sense. For example, my wife's family, I couldn't say this in the first service because they were here. But, but now I can say, my wife's family has a whole bunch of words words that they say that make no sense outside of them. But in their family, they make, for example, they don't use the term remote control. They only use the term buttons. Would you hand me the buttons? Which to me always references a shirt or a jacket. I don't know what you're talking about buttons, but that's a remote control for them. They say, would you hand me the button? And, but sometimes it's more serious than that. If you've ever studied poverty in the United States, poverty is not a racial issue. 
It is not an issue in the United States of opportunity or resources. Poverty is legitimately a family issue. It is a learned behavior that exists in the context of families that is passed down from one generation to the next. We know that's true because we see it happen in other contexts. With addiction, for example, there are some families that have been just riddled with alcoholism, and you've seen the dad have the behavior, and then the kids, and then the grandkids, as it's passed down from one generation to the next. It's serious because we tend to, number two, we tend to prefer our own type of mess. It's so interesting that we can often overlook the messes that we have in our families to then look into other families and pronounce some sort of judgment on them because we see them in a mess. But we just, the truth is we know that we have our own versions of messy, but we just prefer ours. And some of you, you grew up in families that were really good. Okay, I'm just going to hand it to you. You guys tried hard. You ate well. You worked out. Your parents worked out. Your house always looked like nobody lived there, right? That's our goal, that we want our house to be so clean that it looks like nobody even lives in our house. And every time visitors came over, it looked like your home was a show home. And the truth is, is that you sat around at dinner time and you talked about other families and you made fun of their messes. That was your topics of conversation, which actually means that your mess was pride because every family has a version of mess. Every family does. And we tend to prefer our own type of mess. And the harsh reality of the mess that exists in our family is number three, the mess always comes from sin. The mess always comes from sin. See, a lot of times we think that the mess in our family, the messiness that exists is cute. Maybe it's that your kids say that word that they shouldn't have, but it's so cute everybody laughs at it, right? Or something like that, right? Or maybe it's preference where you think, well, you know what? I prefer not to take as good a care of my stuff as I could because, you know, I grew up in a family where we didn't value that, and so now that's a preference of mine. See, that's not the truth. Mess isn't preference, and it's not cute. Mess comes from sin. Look at this. James 4.17, remember it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. it. It's sin to know what you should do and then not do it. In the first talk in the series, I shared how the fact that a lot of times we feel like we're failing actually points us to God because we would say when we make a mess in life, we would say, well, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. But actually what we're saying is there's a perfect that nobody is. There's a perfect, there's a standard that exists beyond me. And if I could shuck that standard and get rid of that standard, I would because it causes me to feel sad and depressed and have tons of regret and shame. But see, that's pointing me to something that exists beyond myself. And James says, listen, if you know that there's something that you should do and you don't do it, it's sin. It's sin. Just let's call it out there. This is what it is. And as parents in our families, we just need to own up to the fact that we're sinful. You're not perfect. You're never going to be a perfect parent no matter how hard you try. 
And the truth is, is that in the same way that the Bible says that when we sin against someone else, we should go to them and we should ask for forgiveness and repent. In the same way, you need to understand as a parent along the way, you're going to sin against your kids. And you need to actively be going to them and saying, I blew it, I sinned, I need you to forgive me. And some of y'all struggle with your kids and you just go, they just won't say I'm sorry, they won't say I'm sorry. Well, you won't say I'm sorry. You won't repent. You got to lead the way in that. Because number two, our kids are sinners too. Have you figured that out yet? I have. They'll never do what I ask them to do. You don't have to teach kids to misbehave, do you? You don't have to teach kids to make a mess. They learn that instinctively, right? The room's clean 10 minutes later. It's not. They know how to do that. And in life, they know how to do it too. They know how to make a mess out of their lives. The job of a parent isn't just to go, hey, you go be a kid. No, the job of a parent is to say, my job is to be here and now to train you to become an adult. So that when you make a mess, you know how to deal with it. You know to repent, and you know to go say, I'm sorry, and you know to provide restitution. You know to do all of these things when you've made a mess in life, but you also know how to stay out of messes. Because our kids are tiny little tyrants that want to take over your family. They do. They just pay attention. That's all. They're, they're, they're working behind the scenes to take over. And the job of a parent is to make sure that they don't. Now, I'm going to share a verse with you that comes out of Numbers chapter 14. I think it's really one of the scariest verses in the entire Bible, especially if you're a parent here. There's so much hope in it, but there's also a harsh reality that comes from sin. Look at this. The Lord is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. Now, we want to stop there and go, that's awesome. Look at who God is. He is loving and patient, forgiving. But look at this. But he doesn't excuse the guilty. He doesn't excuse them. For he lays the sins of the parents upon their children, and the entire family is affected. Even children in the third and fourth generations. I, I want you to understand something that's harsh. Is that if you struggle as a parent with unforgiveness, more than likely, if you don't deal with it, you will pass it off to your kids. If you struggle with control, if you don't deal with it in your heart and in your life, more than likely you will pass it off and hand it off to your kids. And I don't think that this is a statement of judgment where God says, I'm going to cause it on my end. I'm, I think that God's saying, no, this is just what happens. When a kid grows up in an environment where mom is controlling and dad is passive, girl becomes controlling because that's where she grew up. And you'll hand it off. If you're a dad and you're here and you struggle with lust, it's easy to pass that off to your kids. If you're a family that's undisciplined, it's easy to pass that off to your kids. And it doesn't just stop with you and your kids. The Bible says that it takes generations to get it out. And so with that reality, I want to take you to John chapter 11. And I want to show you hope that exists 
in rescue from the mess. In John chapter 11, Jesus interacts with a family. All right, so on this Mother's Day, I think it's pretty neat to kind of isolate Jesus in a story where he's dealing with a family. He's concentrating his relational efforts with three uh, siblings, two girls and a boy, and we get introduced to them at the very beginning of John chapter 11. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany. I'm just going to stop there just because this provides some context. Bethany was basically like a suburb of Jerusalem. It was right outside the city. It was a small town, but it had a lot of proximity to the big city of Jerusalem. So he lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha, and this is the Mary, now pay attention, Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped it with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very, very sick. Now, that uh, may a lot of times in our culture be interpreted as, well, you know, he's sick. What what does that mean, right? Well, it Jesus, would you pray for him? No, really what this was is this was an invitation for Jesus to to leave where he was and to come and see the family. And in that moment, we see probably the first thing that we need to know if we're ever going to get rescued from the mess that exists in our family. It's this, that every family needs Jesus to rescue them. Every family. I don't care how good your family is how good you think it is, how responsible you think. Every family needs Jesus to rescue them. And Mary and Martha recognized that as her brother became very ill, that Jesus was the source of their hope. And so they sent a message to Jesus. Jesus, would you please come? Jesus, would you come? Jesus, your friend is sick. You love him. Would you please come? But you know what's interesting? when we actually recognize that we're in a mess, how many times do we turn to another source other than Jesus? Have you ever noticed that? Have you, it's so interesting for me working with people that when people are in a financial mess, they often feel like more money is the answer to their problem. And it's not, ever. The, the issue is how do you use the money that you have. And if you never get back to the source of the problem, which is your connection and following Jesus financially, it's never going to get any better. So we turn to the wrong source. And actually, I think we see a picture of this in an event that would happen later that John referenced where Martha was entertaining and Mary poured some oil on the feet of Jesus. A very famous event. Obviously, the writer John knew that the audience that he was writing to would know who he was referencing. And so John says, hey, this happened later. But then I saw what I want to do is take you back to Luke 10 and show you that, that event. So a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught, but Martha was distracted by the big dinner that she was preparing. You know, I think that a lot of times when we think about the rescue that we need to have happen in our lives, when we think about that, what we're actually thinking about is big things. We're we're thinking, God, I need you to rescue me from uh, addictions or, or from some past hurts. But do you realize that there are things every single day that we need Jesus to rescue us from? And I think that we see one of those right in this moment where Martha was so busy 
She was so busy. And oftentimes, we need Jesus to rescue us from being busy. How many of y'all have recognized that as a culture, we're way too busy these days? There's a new book that's out called Addicted to Busy, where the, the author actually submits that being busy, respond, what it does to our brains is so similar to a medical reaction to some things that we would even call opioids, that, that it, is, it is significant in what it does to our brains. And many of us are so addicted to being busy. And it appears that Martha in this moment was just busy. She was busy working. Actually, you want me to tell you what I think it shows us? That Martha was trying to earn something that Mary was resting in. She was busy trying to get something. How many of y'all have ever known that your family just gets busy trying to get something out of life, that you get it, and then months later you look back and you go, was that worth it? I worked those extra hours to get that new TV. Was that worth it? I was gone those nights for my family trying to make a little bit more money. And what we, we, we blew it. Was it worth it? So look what happens here. So Martha came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? <laughs> Seems like a fair question, right? I mean, she's hosting the party. They're sisters. She actually should be helping her. So can you please tell her to come and help me? But the Lord said, listen to how Jesus responded. My dear Martha, you're worried and upset over all those details, but there's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. Pay attention to that right there, okay? Pay attention. Leave that verse up there. There's one thing that's worth being concerned about. Mary's discovered it, and what? It cannot be taken away. How many of y'all, if you're honest, you've let your lives get so busy trying to get something in life that can be taken away. It can be. If you lost your job, your home could be repossessed. Your car could be taken away. But there are people around you that you're neglecting that could never be taken away. And there's a relationship with your almighty creator that God wants to have with you that could never be taken away. Jesus says, I want you to see this. Mary, she's sitting at my feet because she realizes there's something in me that can never be taken away. And this dinner that you're working so hard, tomorrow everybody's going to forget about this. The food's going to be gone. It's going to be eaten. The experience is going to be over. But Mary has found something that will never be taken away. Sometimes, we don't just need to be rescued from the big. We actually need to be rescued from our busy intentions day to day. And they may be good intentions, maybe things that's not terrible. But it's so important to know this, number two, that the mess in our family is an issue of life and death. It's an issue of life. It's not cute. It's not a matter of preference. The issues that we face in our family of mess are literally an issue of life and death. And we see this kind of right now in the story of Lazarus, all right? So I'm going to go back to that story. Jesus has just learned by messenger that his friend is sick. And in John 11, verses 5 and 6, it says this, that Jesus loved Martha, although he loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Some of you have prayed and said, God, I need you to rescue me. But he didn't respond immediately. 
You may still be praying, God, I need you to rescue me. Just because God has delayed the answer, pay attention to this, doesn't mean that he doesn't hold the answer. I'm going to say that again. Just because God has delayed the answer doesn't mean that he doesn't hold the answer. And a lot of times when we live in a pattern of delay, when God is saying, no way, it's not time. No way, it's not time. A lot of times we feel like God doesn't love us anymore. As a matter of fact, it's how we treat people, isn't it? If they don't do exactly what we want them to do, when we want them to do it, we'll say, you don't love me. But here we find Jesus, who's not doing what he was asked to do, but the scriptures go so far to point out that he does love them. So continuing on, after two days, Jesus leaves. It was apparently a pretty long journey because by the time he gets there, Lazarus has been dead for five days. And on the outskirts of town, he has this moment with Martha, where, who, who's the sister that was so busy. But you see a side to Martha in this interaction that I love because she sees something in Jesus that's special. So look at this. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord... If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I'm just going to stop there because later Mary's going to say the exact same thing. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But Martha sees something different in Jesus. Martha says, but even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. In other words, translation, if you were to ask God to bring my brother back to life, I know he'll do that. I know he will. Now, Lazarus said this moment has been dead for four days. Let me just give you some kind of history lesson here. At four days, he would have begun to decompose, okay? They didn't embalm bodies back then. They literally went in just like they were. And so at four days, they gave up hope. As a matter of fact, Jews had this cultural belief at the turn of the century, or, or at this point in time in the first century, where they, they believed that for three days, the Spirit of God still had the capacity to move, to heal and resurrect the body. And so it's significant that it's on day four, because at this point, they've given up all hope, but not Martha. Not Martha. She still clung to the hope that whatever Jesus wanted to do, he could do. And I think maybe there's some of us today that need to realize that while the mess in our family has been sinful and it's been broken and you know it's there, maybe nobody else does, it is important to know that God can still rescue you, that God wants to rescue you. He doesn't want to leave you in that mess. And so Jesus, think about what plays out after that. Jesus walks into Bethany, a small town where people have literally flooded out of Jerusalem to come and provide care for this family. And he walks into the town. When he walks into the town, Mary greets him and she's emotional and he goes to the tomb of Lazarus. With all these people around, he asks for the stone to be rolled away. I love the King James rendering of that moment because the King James says that, and he stinketh. <laughs> you can imagine the Middle East is hot, a hot like we've never experienced. That body had been in there for four days. And Jesus gave Lazarus an invitation. Lazarus come out come out 
See, I think that maybe today that might be what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. Maybe today is the day for you to come out. To come out of the mess. To finally surrender and to trust God. Because you know what happened to Lazarus? In a point where it was beyond all hope, when all hope would have naturally been given up, Lazarus stumbled out of the grave alive. Covered in grave clothes. Resurrected by the power of God. You know what's interesting to me? When they had the meal the next day, the chief priest who had already began plotting to kill Jesus began plotting to kill Lazarus. Can you imagine being the guy who had been dead for four days and hearing that someone was plotting to kill you? I wouldn't imagine he was like, just bring it on, you know, whatever. Somebody's already tried it. <laughs> Didn't go too well the first time. Because when you walk through something like that, the testimony is so powerful of the power of God and what God can do. And I think that the situation that some of you are facing today seems lost and hopeless. But when the power of God shows up in your family and God resurrects that part of your life, the world that witnesses it will sit back and go, there's nothing that God can't do. And it may not even be for the world that witnesses. It may just be for you. See, Jesus showed up and invited Lazarus out of that grave. And I want you to see something about the rescue that is so important. It's the last thing you know. It's that rescue only comes from Jesus on his terms. Rescue only comes from Jesus on his terms. I can't count the times that in our little community... I've heard guys and girls say, well, you know, I kind of have a deal with God. Can I just be blunt? No, you don't. You don't have a deal with God. Because that would imply that you have something to deal with. And you don't. The deal that he offers is the same for all of us. He went all in. He gave up his will and his life. And that's exactly what he demands from you. And so today, if you're here, and maybe you've ran from that level of commitment with him, but today is a day that you finally see that the heart of God loves you, God cares for you, and he wants to take care of you. Maybe today is the day that you finally lay it down and surrender. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.